0: So what I've been exploring is what's the role of arts and creative practice within healthcare systems and acute systems. It's taken me back to think about the long-term impact. I just made a new vehicle for thinking called Creative Brain Week, which brings neuroscientists and creatives and all sorts of other people together. We just did a week where we asked people to think about conflict, imagination, and joy, because we started with what we know in Ireland, which is the long-term 40 plus years impact of of a conflict and we know that in terms of mental health gender-based violence physical and emotional difficulties but we also know that in terms of what creative interventions can do and we are now in a place where we connect both the creative interventions and the research with global communities where people are looking at the results of 100 years of conflict or being conflicted because of the way that their story is visible or not visible within the environment that they live. I'm also thinking about the tools. I love this idea. I'm very fond of this idea that the vehicle that got you this far might not be the vehicle that gets you to the next bit. And so part of my answering what next is to think about what I do and how I do things and how I might change them.
1: That was Dominic Campbell from our last show talking about where a life of art making, festival organizing, and leadership in the creative aging field seems to be taking him as he ponders the future. In that episode, Dominic shared stories and lessons from a journey that spanned continents and touched on subjects ranging from the community-building power of Caribbean Carnival to working with cutting-edge brain science at the Global Brain Health Institute. In this episode, we continue our conversation exploring questions like what are the various roles artists can play working with other sectors like science, healthcare, and policy making? In those instances, what conditions support radical and effective collaborative thinking and design, and how can artists help researchers in science and health translate their findings to the real world? Or as Dominic puts it, lab to table? I've found it to be a very interesting conversation, and I hope you agree. Story, story, story. This is Change the Story, Change the World. My name is Bill Cleveland. Part 5, Boiling the Ocean. So, Dominic, earlier in our conversation, you described your time working with the Global Brain Health Institute, which... I understand it was very much an early days experiment when you joined in 2016. And you mentioned that that experience provided not only new insights and partnerships, but also intensified your interest in how creativity can advance multidisciplinary collaborative structures and systems like GBHI, the Global Brain Health Institute. Could you elaborate on that?
0: yeah i was there as the first cohort it's an interesting thing so firstly gbhi and then the mothership which is the Atlantic institute so they were still trying to figure out what this thing was and to migrate benefit i ended up there for two years and what's the pedagogy for a pretty diverse set of disciplinarians coming to what is initially a biomedical understanding of alzheimer's and dementia from that beginning so it's evolved slightly differently on both sites so America reflects American healthcare system Ireland reflects Irish healthcare system but they also reflect the culture of both sites and what became very quickly apparent was I arrived with a set of experiences not as an empty vessel so I felt it appropriate to bring those experiences into that environment and to look yeah. at the culture of healthcare to look at what that meant for the people that worked in it to look at what became a big focus on the social determinants of health. And gradually the program has evolved from, from a singular focus on Alzheimer's dementia to something slightly broader. And it's still evolving, which is
1: fantastic. Yeah.
0: And then after about a year, maybe, maybe actually a bit quicker than that, it became apparent that The GBHI was one of several different fellowships that were part of the Atlantic Institute, and each of those has a focus on equity in some form, depending on the context where the program is started. So the South African one is focused on race equity, there is one focused on global issues run from London School of Economics. There's one in Melbourne focused on Aboriginal Torres Island straits, framings of social equity. So they're very different depending on where they grow and so those seven run independently but they connect through the university of oxford and gradually it's become interesting to try and work with both so with gbhi and the brain health side of things and health models and ways that artists work and then with atlantic on complex systems things like displacement narrative change all of that good stuff trying to boil the oceans my friend says
1: <laughs> that's a great image so How do art and the creative process figure in making the oceans boil?
0: Yeah, it was a part of ambition, but I think art means different things, I think. And so there was a sense that creativity was great for amplifying scientific messages. And then there was also a sense that maybe you needed to analyze the artists because of their brain conditions, which was quite entertaining. Yes. (laughs) There was a job to do in uh, developing a shared framework for understanding. And so I initially wrote a thing called the five pockets what these are what I suggest are the role for creativity and the arts within the GBHI universe and then from that I developed a arts and brain curriculum which i would taught for three years and embedded now in the curriculum and ways of thinking and and now elements of that have gone off on their own lovely journey and other people as they've come in have, have contributed and added to that but the ambition was always to have very different types of people so journalists and lawyers and different kinds of intelligence what i don't think they quite realized was firstly when you invite artists in, they look at the world in a way that changes the way that everybody else looks at the world and they often exist in a place of divine disgruntlement
1: yes they do <laughs>
0: yeah so you know they might be questioning things but it's really it it's from a place of glory i suppose How do we make this better and more interesting?
1: What's interesting Mm. to me is that, and this has been my experience almost everywhere I've been, is that the mothership never imagines itself as a patient Mm. or as a peer. It often just imagines itself as going from one ocean to another, leading the charge. And when it finds itself in the learning mode, that's, that's institutional change. I mean, it's hard, it's difficult, and some of it is impossible. But to me, that's one of the most interesting things that I've done in my work is get beyond the, the idea that certain places are endowed with a, a special imprimatur and, especially at the highest levels, open them back up to the learning mode for their own culture and their own Structures, which is, to me, is totally thrilling to be around that.
0: It has been and continues to be interesting for all sorts of reasons. So one reason is I was reminded of the work of a woman called Barbara Steveni and her husband or partner, a guy called John Latham, were artists. And they are one of the places that the idea of an artist in residence started in the late 50s.
1: Oh, yeah. Organization and imagination, one of the great, imaginative interventions or inventions of the 20th century. Artists embedded and paid as professional creative peers working in the heart of government and industry in Great Britain. So here is Barbara Stavini in a recent interview on Art360 talking about that work.
2: I had this idea that there was a new role for artists. What would we have to do if we were in these dirty contexts of Commerce, industry, and government, as it later became. Our intention was that there was a much more active role if we could negotiate the role which would carry an artist approach to work in a different context, which would then impinge on what that work would be. And that was to negotiate an open brief.
0: And so I went back and looked at that work, and what they were writing about and thinking about was how you bring in an the artist as every person and a sort of external intelligence. And they said, Mm -hmm. what's fundamental is that the artist has to be invited in. So the organization wants to have that intelligence. So I was thinking about that and continue to think about that, actually, with the fellowship. Also, I'd never been in a university. So that was an interesting thing to realize that. The university has buildings and each building is a particular department and each department has a particular fixed noun attached to it. The interesting stuff is where there's a hyphen. So that was interesting, but, but beyond that was also, I think when an institution or an organization is in formation, then it's rich with possibility. But what happens pretty quickly Mm. is an institution settles into a pattern where its primary focus is to sustain the institution. So the first rule of the institution yep. is to sustain itself. And then the second thing that happens is it can only understand an organization that's a bit like itself. It literally doesn't have yes. a weight. You can only see what you can measure, that kind of way of thinking. So that is, and has been, and remains interesting. And there are some great people in the GBHI and in the Atlantic, and they continue to attract extraordinary fellows. And the fellows are really the most interesting place. Yeah. You know yeah. what they're going to do and what they're developing, and how they deal with the messiness of everyday existence, and just yeah, getting a sense of how you can and cannot work, or how they can and cannot work. It's great, fantastic thing.
1: And to me, and I apologize for the metaphor, each one of them is an infection agent with their story, and they're obviously all accomplished. So the story is robust, so they can't be ignored in the way that sometimes power structures can do and looking at their biographies. The thing I like is investing in change agents. Mm -hmm. The idea that these people already have agency, you're giving them some new horsepower and relationships, which probably are the most important, putting them back in the wild. And all the training I've done has been based on that idea that you take folks that are predisposed. To working, organizing, navigating systems, understanding them, but at the end of the day, accountable to a community or an mm. idea, and then giving them some an extra boost, which is great. I'm not as familiar as you are with the outcomes of all these folks. Do you feel pretty good about what's happened with the people that have gone back into their it's, world? It's
0: such a broad you got all the challenges you'd expect, cultural diversity, belief system, education, political environment, stability of environment that people work in, medical system or not. So you have all of those and then you have people who are at different stages of personal and career development. So it's a universe of people at different states. So the first challenge is finding a language so when there was four of us, it was really interesting because it was quite intense because there were only four of us and we had to get on with it. And there would be me, there, would be a, there was a neuropsychologist, clinical linguist, practitioner in a hospital, and an epidemiologist. All words that I couldn't pronounce when we started.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and so we had these lovely conversations and they would say things that I w- just wouldn't understand what they were saying at all. And I would say things, and as they said when they got to know me, he would say things, and it sounded to us like rainbows and unicorns. So we had a (laughs) completely fascinating misunderstanding for a long time. And I realized at one point that I needed to spend as much time trying to understand these people with multiple PhDs as I would spend trying to understand someone with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's that I was working with in a workshop. I had to put Mm. in the effort. And I had to get out of my comfort zone to find out and better understand what it was that they did. And when I started to do that, then it became infinitely richer. The second thing that helped and this emerged over a couple of years is that GBHI is a values based organization. And so it reverts back to values rather than to like any other kind of ambition. And it has a theory of change, pole star direction of travel, but in the middle bit, there's a lot of leeway for moving around. And then I think the fact that it's on two sites means that there's enough grit to make a pearl. So there is a negotiation ongoing all the time. So that makes it really fascinating. And occasionally I get very fed up with like people talking about potential, but then I remind myself that actually people are at different stages and They're at different stages of their own development of their career, whatever that might be. And also with their relationship to the program that they're going through. And I started to do these once a month check-ins initially just for artists because artists arriving into a biomedical environment can find it quite challenging. So we just used to check in and chat and see how people were doing. And then we kept it going and now it's been going for about four years. So what that means is there are people from all the cohorts and the cross generational piece is phenomenally rich. So not only are people saying that thing happened to me and we felt that, but they're also starting to cluster in terms of interest, discipline, ambition in all sorts of new and interesting ways. And so what I think is starting to happen is GBHI based projects popping up all over the place. But it took a while for them to seed and to, if you want to use organic language, to go through a whole sort of cycle before they could germinate. And then in parallel, there are people that go fast, they just go really fast. So because it's a values-based system, once you're part of the program, there's an initial degree of trust, once people get to know you a little bit more and there's always an opportunity for that, social event or online event, or then you develop a shared understanding. And then with some people, you find that your horizons align and your practice aligns really quickly and you can do some really exciting things. So that's mm. the work that I've done in West Africa with that happened really fast and, and continues to grow to face, right? There's work that I'm doing with in Latin America with Agustina Banes on curriculum development, but on all sorts of other areas. Around artists we have a project called Making a Way Out of No Way, which is about artists that reimagine the communities that they're born into.
1: Here is Augustin Ibanez, a neuroscientist and Global Atlantic Fellow, describing one of these projects that's bringing music to communities in Latin America as a brain health change agent.
3: Music has this kind of exceptional blending. You know, music activates your language areas of your brain, but also the memory, also the feelings. It's a kind of... um, Synergetic blending that happens in the brains and this is that the music makes. It makes The music integrates a huge blending of process in the brain and because of that is so powerful. We are working with the WHO and we will work during two years to prepare a specific curriculum with different topics like violence in Colombia, uh, um tango for Parkinson's disease in Chile and Argentina, improving the educational skills of uh, street musicians like, like Copa y Vida. And then after this two years period, if we show that we can uh, grow and create collaborations with them, we can apply to direct funding from the WHO.
0: And then, yeah, Creative Brain Week has become this platform for showcasing that work, amplifying it, inspiring people, and then and encouraging people to connect and go on. So it, it, I think there's different projects at different levels of gestation and some things just take time, like policy takes policy time. and Lab-based research seems to take yeah. lab-based research time and artists just go, yeah, we'll do that tomorrow.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Part six, lab to table. One of the things I keep thinking about is I've been through a lot of institutional crises, Mm. organizations that are falling apart, Mm. which many people see as the beginning of an end and has given me the most fundamental laboratory for understanding change, particularly when it comes to structures that are enamored of themselves. In some cases, falling apart is, it's the only way that they can allow change to occur, or even not even allow, it It just occurs, and in in places that really didn't understand what was happening. I mean, it's the kind of thing where someone ends up with a physical condition, and they've lost their balance, and they're totally confused, and obviously, left to its own devices, confusion can be very dangerous, but in the right circumstance, it can be an incredible moment for learning, the confusion is based on the things that aren't working anyways. And the most interesting thing to me has been that often in those circumstances, nobody imagines that some good questions and good answers could come from the creative tribe. Now, that's not true at GBHI, where they have recognized that there's something there in the creative process that's exciting to me
0: it's yeah it's interesting that i went looking for possible models when i first wandered in the door and so i came across rank xerox park run by rich gold which was this place for experimentation which all sorts of things came out of uh, big blue i guess which was the new york place nasa in a way and i tried to see what they had in common and i'm not sure that's as embedded in GBHI but it's those kind of messy spaces are really really fascinating and what you can learn from mm-hmm. them and they don't endure which is interesting <laughs> they have a sort of finite yeah. life but interestingly enough the University in, in Trinity has been talking about this and there's definitely a piece in that in GBHI there's an element of that and in the Bigger Atlantic initiative and partly it's simply because it brings people that wouldn't ordinarily get to hang out together together
1: yeah, that's the key. It really that's is. Simple. What's totally the most good. radical thing you can do? My friend,
0: Mary R- R- Turner said, tell someone your life story. Absolutely. And then where does it go from yep. there? But it got into, it's interesting as well for pedagogy. There are quite a lot of dancers now on the program or have come through the program.
1: Yeah, I've noticed.
0: Incredibly eloquent people in all sorts of ways. And partly because of the pandemic, they've not had the chance to hang out together. And so it's, they are hobbled, I think not having the opportunity to move and think so we we'll see where that goes with interest I think.
1: so you know liz Lerman as well yeah the last two podcasts are liz two two sections and she gets into some depth about not just the dance part but how the dance contributes to new ways of thinking you know making change in the world i mean that's her thing and i was just thinking about if they're not already familiar with liz turning those dancers on particularly to liz's horizontal thinking and the critical response process and now she's on to the heisenberg uncertainty principle mm-hmm. which is of course central to the dance world <laughs> and here's what she has to say about it
2: this is where i'm heading with this new this newer idea and it started when I did the project around physics. It's the Heisenberg, which everybody talked about Heisenberg uncertainty, which I've defined as if you measure the shape, you lose the velocity. If you go after the velocity, you can't see the shape. And I think this is really interesting because the you really need both. You have to be able to do both. Most things can't. In fact, most dancers can't. Most dancers are shape dancers or momentum dancers. There are very few who can do both. But institutions are shaped and they wanna change their shape, can't. It's all interlocking shapes. So you have to dissolve the molecules. You've gotta dissolve back into where you have momentum, which can be terrifying to an institution. It doesn't know if it's gonna know its shape again, but you have to, like a curriculum. You have to let it go. I don't think the ingredients actually change that much. I mean, the stuff is all there, but, and then you let the new shape take its form that's going to be more ready for the time we're in. And you want a flexibility between shape and
0: momentum. And it's interesting when you link it back to the neuroscience. So we're beginning to be able to do what I described the other day as lab to table, which is not necessarily the right analogy when you're talking about brains, but it is a kind of farm to table process. So that you can take Mm. what people are discovering Mm. in the labs or in the scanners and then you can think about education and you think about the pedagogy for education, which I think is really good to scratch the surface of that. And then you can think about intervention and then you can think about evaluation going back to, to inform the lab based work. So you end up with a virtuous process and Mm -hmm. there is no hierarchy of one thing over another. And when we get to there, I think we'll be in a really sweet spot because the the tendency is that the health science analyzes how good the singing project is and that single direction i think it'll back thinking into a corner because then you're in a competitive environment where you're thinking about how good is the aspirin compared yeah. to the that's and you're missing it exactly. you're not able to articulate really what happens this wouldn't that well but the pedagogy bit's fascinating so dancers talk about move think do so you move first mm-hmm. then you yeah and there is some really interesting neuroscience that would echo something like a haptic process. Think with your hands that we literally construct. Mm-hmm. And so, when you start to think about how do you teach whatever it is we're learning, then some interesting stuff starts to happen. And especially now that the AI tools are so effective that they're causing all sorts of panic in academic lands, because they did are. I write this or did, <laughs> a, did an AI write this? And so they're going back to doing oral <laughs> presentation when I think that opens up yep. something that's really fascinating for how knowledge is made and transmitted. And stops the arts being this rarefied thing that happens in places with the bread rope, which you and I don't believe, but it's another reason for encouraging back into the everyday. So I think the main thing I like about working with the neuroscientists and GBHI in general is that it's not about creative practice being for a small group of people who are very lovely, but it roots in everyday life. And that was where I was before I joined the GBHI, and now the other strands of work yeah. are evolving. That's yeah. That's also where my thinking is. I've always been about sense-making as a way of understanding the world and making things with other people as a way to understand who and where we all are in the world.
1: Yeah. So I work with an organization called the Pillsbury House and Theatre, and they're a human service organization that is arts-based.
3: Mm-hmm. It's
1: arts-based. They're one of the most evolved in that way, in that if you look at their staff, they're equally divided by human service professionals and creative practitioners. And they have a community-based accountability mission to 30,000 people that live in two neighborhoods in Minneapolis, the epicenter of which is where George Floyd's murder occurred. And so they've been involved in really nitty-gritty questions of how to avoid further harm, how to mitigate trauma, how to bridge difference, how to negotiate conflict, all those kinds of things. And my little scraping the surface of neuroscience, of brain science, uh, I, I shared with them about... Issues related to difference and fear and flight or fight. And the most wonderful thing about it, and I think this is true with Liz's work as well, is that they would say things like, What took those neuroscientists so long to figure this out? (laughs) We've known this all along. And I mean, to me, that's why I feel like there's this natural alliance in this thing is that you have people who are experiencing or discovering, or learning about some pretty profound things in parallel universes who mm. speak different languages. Mm. And, uh, and I think it really benefited them to understand some of the synapse responses that are going on when they're actually in the field doing their work, which is pretty intense. And I think having that knowledge is a not only powerful, it can make you so much more effective, I think, in Mm. that kind of work.
0: Yeah. It's interesting learning the neuroscience. So like everybody else, I guess the things that I like most are the bit where I find a tool that's useful for me. And so that could be anything from somebody gifting me tools for language. For example, the neurocircuitry around excitement and fear are quite similar. So when you're going to give a presentation and a speech, you can either decide to tell yourself that you are fearful or that you're excited. And if you tell yourself repeatedly that you're <laughs> excited, it becomes so much easier to give a presentation. So little things like that are really helpful, as are ways of questioning why the brain is biased. For example, there is an evolutionary theory that aligns with aversion, and we are most we have greatest aversion from things that are wet and dribble and are contagious. It's all about contagion, it's about staying safe. And you can logic that out to realise that people find it hardest to work with people who have a disability which makes them dribble, than they do with something that might make them noisy, or right? So if people are wet, uh-huh. then it's, you have to work at it. So it's those little things are really useful. Mm-hmm. And learning about collective behaviour as well, I think, is quite a fascinating thing. And it's, it's an interesting thing to have that in your mind alongside frameworks for the development of Alzheimer's or the many manifestations of Alzheimer's that are beginning to be unpicked through neuroscience research. And that just gives you a greater suite of tools. So you can learn to observe people to realise that they've got a particular kind of challenge in a particular part of their brain and therefore uh, Mm. music might be better than language or visual might be better than anything or as well as the flip side which is people remember how you make them feel way more than they remember who you are and that's true for anybody but it's particularly true for someone whose cognitive Mm. memory aspects are failing so yeah being able to sit with bits of knowledge from both is great and and to learn not to reject it but to be critical about it in a filtering sense and the other thing that was interesting i think is realizing that everybody starts from the perspective of curiosity and then they just pick up tools so everybody's interested in how this works and what happens with the way that people behave and why do they do that particularly when they wander into someone like university but they develop different disciplines and they we tend to call these the arts and the sciences actually i think that's getting a bit more blurry in a really interesting way and it's a great place to hang out. It's, it's really fascinating.
1: Part 7. Five pockets and a culture of care. So from my experience, I know that these cross-sector, cross-discipline mashups can be extraordinarily stimulating and provocative. And I'm curious about whether it has changed the way you think about the work, both with your aims and your approach. Yeah.
0: When we last talked pre-pandemic, I was busy trying to make festivals and events as a way of prototyping what a world with adults living longer, healthier could be. And then getting people together who were over the age of 70 wasn't such a good idea. So we've had to shelve that (laughs) and rethink it. We also had to adapt all the ways that we were trying to survive and thrive. And one of the things that's come out of that is Work with the Irish Hospice Foundation which is a national agency for the idea of hospice so it trains people, it trains the medical services, it basically has brought in Ireland the idea of end-of-life and palliative care into the system that's primarily acute and so two years ago in the pandemic they found an excuse to do a four-month project which would help them think about what the role of arts and creativity was in the work that they do and so they brought me in I did a four-month project did some nice things and then it's taken off so now it's a national program with 52 projects and occasionally the neuroscience offers a language for understanding what might be going on in a room or in people's relationships or in a particular phase and it's interesting for me how some of the artists that go through the program they pick up what they pick up and then when they get to the other side after a while they, they merge back into what they were doing previously. Josh Cornbluth, the monologist, would be a good example. He's gone back to finish a piece he was writing before he did GBHI, but he's also still doing the citizen brain work where he uses his skills to explain or articulate or explore a particular aspect of neuroscience. Or Rowena Ritchie, who works with For You Productions and makes dance work and is it's interesting in how you convene, I think, how you assemble, how you bring groups of people together. And so the GBHI experience is offering a suite of tools that they are adapting into their own toolkit rather than reducing what they do simply to let me explain
1: the Alzheimer's right, to, to you. Be, yeah, they're mm. not an agent, they're their own agent. Yeah, yes. they're,
0: their own agency. Got yeah. It. So that's quite interesting. So when we try to articulate that, we develop this thing called the Five Pockets. So there is creativity that is about engaging individuals or groups. There is creativity as research practice. There is creativity as amplification. There is creativity as transformation of system, transformation of place. And then the other one is about individual agency, the journey of an individual with themselves. And they're a useful framework for trying to share an, an understanding of people's practice. And to not think about this in a hierarchy, but to think about this in a different way.
1: Yeah, I did a similar thing for a Halfway House in southwest Minnesota that was taking in women and their families who have just come out of institutionalization. Hmm. And understandably, their initial thought about what art would be, you're going to teach people how to weave or hmm. do whatever. They were starting from scratch they had just finished the building this is purpose-built and their first cohort was coming some of them with kids and it was just a wonderful way to say what are all the ways that an artist can interact with this emerging community so we came up with four areas the artist as a teacher the artist as a creative problem solver you know, partner with the organization, the artist as a collaborative community builder inside with the folks living there, and the artist as a cultural bridge builder outside between the facility and the broader community. And instead of just naming them, mm. also telling a story for each one. Mm. And every single one of the roles, just like the ones that you've described here, made total sense to them right away once it was shared it wasn't like how weird why would that be something an artist would help you do and it taught me a lot about how the potential story can be expanded in ways that are really rich with really good partners who aren't just standing on the sideline the residents and the administrators were part of the design team and ultimately part of the program and so we we helped them hire artists, train artists, and then basically had people think intentionally about what are the priorities, what are the stages you're in with your organization, what's going to take the most energy, where can this resource help you meet a particular need. It was great. Everybody really understood that this increased the potential for success in a pretty challenging environment. So, Dominic, one of the things that I see in your work and that we emphasized in that program and in our training is recognizing and pushing back on the tyranny of the prevailing narratives about, you know, having been incarcerated, having a disability, getting older as a story of inexorable decline. Could you talk about how that shows up in your work? We've <laughs>
0: been... Increasingly talking about and making projects about the radical potential of older age. And partly that's about the transmission of value. But it's also about thinking as much as anything. What's the great advantage of older age? That you can outthink people. You can't necessarily outrun them. Yes. But you can outthink them.
1: Patience. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's the thing that you see
0: with older adults and young children when the older adults are just having their own fun. Yes. Yeah, that stuff is great. I was looking for something somebody said to me yesterday, which was about accessibility. So they're working on trying to come up with a format for not physical accessibility, but neurodiverse accessibility. So you make spaces, you design spaces that are where you have a standard in the same way that you have ramps and whatever you need Mm -hmm. for physical disability. Mm -hmm. Then they're trying to come up with some equivalent for, for neurodiversity which is a really interesting way of thinking about the world and about design and about what we build.
1: It is. It just seems to me that when you tackle those kinds of very specific questions, here's neurodiversity, now we're going to acknowledge it, now we're going to learn about it, now we're going to try to be adaptive in our Mm. response to it. Oh, actually, this is about making a healthier, more equitable, more enjoyable world for everybody. Mm. (laughs) This isn't just for a certain subset of, of people that we feel sorry for. No, this is about learning how to make a better world. And every aspect of, I mean, dementia is the back door to understanding humans. <laughs> Something's breaking here.
0: There's uh, Joan Tronto, who's this really fantastic academic. And she talks about the foundation of the state. So she went back and studied Greeks. And she said when they founded, when they came up with the idea of the Republic, they had two spaces. They had the Senate, which is over there, and they had the domestic, which was over there. And all the big and important stuff went in the Senate, where the blokes were. And all the other stuff, which included care, went into the domestic space. And so she said, how do we build a Republic which has care at the center of it? And how do you take it from the domestic into the other space and then mix up the genderification of it and it when i came across it it stayed with me ever since and i think about it a lot how do you build a society around ideas of care and we're pretty good at doing care to other people in some cases but we have used it as a weapon occasionally we're not so good at receiving it we're not so good at being the vulnerable person or the person that needs help and maybe that's as important to think about as it is to create Care as armour. So how do we create opportunity for people to be vulnerable and is that not a role of theatre and performance and art and all that good stuff? And I can't think it is. So the shows that I get interested in at the moment are all about that, they're all about assemblage, they're all about how do you bring people into a room so that they can sit with difference. And not simply about diversity, they're much more about equity in the true sense. Yeah. So they're less confused by, what's that quote? We asked for equity and you gave us diversity, but diversity isn't equity. Yes.
1: And the thing is, Dominic, and maybe this is just my American militant point of view, and that is every one of these questions, which is how can we create a world in which care sits at the center? How can we do that? And one of those ways is to give people who are going to be most resistant the understanding what you think you want to need is not going to happen if you don't do this Mm. this isn't just a nice to have this is critical when we talk about care we're not just talking about the care of humans we're talking about a way of having a relationship with the world around you which is very different from something like predatory capitalism which is not very careful
0: there's a great james baldwin quote he said oh, there's always a great james baldwin quote there's probably a great james baldwin quote yes. for everything but there's one that stays to mind yes. at the moment which is he said it's easier to make people cry than it is to get them to change their mind and so it came to mind when you were talking because i'm not sure that what i try to do at the moment is in any way about getting people to change their mind but one of the reasons that I started to do so much work with older populations was because I fondly believed that when people got old and near death, <laughs> that some of the things that they were bothered about and divided by in their earlier years would disappear. And that ain't true, In by and large. It's true when people get sick, they just don't really care, they're just yes. sick. Yeah. But like, if you're old and wealthy and old and poor, there is a massive divide between how you are or are not connected with those things that will hold you up and support you. But I still think there's something in that, which I would think about more now is how do we identify the vulnerability in each other, but also how do we identify the abundance in everybody so that we're not mm. competing for the slices of a cake? Zero sum. Yeah,
1: yeah. Because yeah, you just you live in a
0: small vacuum on a rock in space. So it's ultimately you're just going to shoot yourself in the foot in a big way.
1: Before you go, I want to tell you about a, a project I'm doing very personal, very individual. Often the things that I have to be least accountable for end up in my music. After spending all this time with Liz and her wicked bodies and her witches, which is just delicious. It's just fantastic what she's done. I'm now, I'm rediscovering both the history and I guess you might even say the alchemy of magic. Mm. I feel like I've been in the magic business my whole life because of the imagination being at the center of pretty much everything I do. So I'm in the middle of writing a piece of music about magic. That is, I mean, it's so amazing when you actually undertake A song, which Mm -hmm. may have four verses, a bridge, and you spend a couple of months reading. (laughs) Try and get it right. (laughs) It's a wonderful focusing agent. It's fantastic. So now, in conjunction with the study and the music-making, I wake up in the morning and I go for walks by the water. And I've become an observer of shorebird life, And there are many more questions I have than I have answers for why in the world they're doing what they're doing. My experience of being that connected with with the natural world is that the word miracle just jumps up. Mm. It's (laughs) mm. always there. So the two force fields impinging on my brain these days are miracle and magic. Mm. I'm really Mm. interested in them as ways of seeing, ways of thinking, ways of inquiring. So it's It's, interesting. It's
0: lovely to hear. I Like you, I spent a lot of my recent life organising systems and creating opportunities for people to do things. And increasingly, I'm going back to just letting the work do the work, whether that's making a piece of theatre or writing an imaginative fiction or trying to find the right story for the right moment, whatever that's carried in. So about two years ago, I worked with a songwriter to work with a food bank and over two years we made a song suite with the people from the food bank and we took the glory that is the food bank and then we went off and we tend to work together and then avoid each other for a while and then we'll find a way back over a couple of years. He started a piece and then he had to have three stents in his heart and the piece got finished eventually in a kind of roundabout way and we borrowed St Patrick's Cathedral, the big cathedral in Dublin to perform it early in the morning. We snuck in with their permission and we filmed it. And we just wanted the resonator, really. But you're in a church, and in a cathedral. And it was with people that we've known yeah. for a long time, and we're all looking a bit old and tired now. And it was a lovely piece of music that he'd written, inspired by, I don't know, classical madrigals and prog rock and the Velvet Underground, just uh, yeah. vocal piece. So from that, we're now talking about Every Life Deserves a Cathedral.
1: Ah, uh, yes.
0: But it's not about articulating a lot. It's just about writing the piece and finding the place and rethinking what yep. those buildings allow us to do. We got very excited by the idea that an organ can't travel. It has to come with a cathedral, but it, but I say that to echo your point that yeah, making work is a great process for sense making. In the health work, I've started talking a lot about salutogenesis, which is this idea that you need to create the condition from which health can flourish. So the rest of medicine is based on pathogenesis trying to figure out what's going wrong. The pathology. Yes. Salutogenesis is about growth. It's about creating conditions from which health can flourish. And it's such a great word for all the work that you do or Liz does or I do. It's a nice one to have in your back pocket, I think.
1: It is. That's it in a nutshell. Salutogenesis. I love it. I'm down. Sign me up. (laughs) And thank you, Dominic, for these conversations.
0: Yeah. And
1: stay well. And again, thanks to you all out there listening in. As you may be aware, the past four episodes here have constituted a mini-series on arts and aging with conversations with three leaders in the field. Ann Basting, Veronica Rojas, and Dominic Campbell for the last two. If you agree with me that this neighborhood of the community arts ecosystem has a lot to teach the rest of the field. I encourage you to check out episodes 69, 70, and 71 that, along with this episode, make up this series. And a reminder, please check out our collections of past episodes that have been organized by subject and arts discipline and other ways on our website at www.artandcommunity.com under the podcast drop-down. Change the Story, Change the World is a production of the Center for the Study of Art and Community. Our theme and soundscape blossom up regularly from the brilliant musical garden tended by Judy Munson. Our text editing is by Andre Nebe. Our effects come from freesound.org and our inspiration rises up from the ever-present spirit of Ook 235. Until next time, stay well, do good, and spread the good word. And one last note, this episode has been 100% human.